The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. We are in a new series uh, called Under the Hood, and we're going to be studying, working through the letter of James. And so, uh, like I uh, said a moment ago, go ahead and turn your attention there. If you have a Bible, uh, open up with me to James chapter 1. And we have called this series Under the Hood for reasons I'll explain in a moment, but we intend to hopefully have, you know, it's summertime, hopefully we're going to have some fun with this series. But I want to actually show you two cars to start our time. Uh, And uh, if there are any car people here or over at Cooper City watching online, you might really connect with this part of our service. But I want to show you two cars. So first, uh, let's pull up this first car. This is a Bugatti, okay? Uh, This was the most expensive car in the world, sitting at $18 million, and I can only imagine how long of a waiting list uh, or how, like, exclusive it is to get this. But there's there's the Bugatti. The actual name of it, I couldn't pronounce. I tried. I think it's French. I gave up. So uh, you could look it up. But $18 million, and that's yours. But recently, something usurped that car and now has the label and is famous for being the most expensive car in the world. It is the Rolls-Royce Boat Tail, okay? The Rolls-Royce Boat Tail, okay? Behold that, $28 million, and that can be yours. And uh, I don't know about you, but there have been all these times in my life where I'm like hanging out by my car, and it's really hot outside, but I wanna sit by my car, and it's just so, the, the sunlight is just overwhelming, and I just think to myself, man, if only I had an umbrella, attached to my car and like a little like butler's table, you know, to, you know, with champagne glasses, right? I mean, don't you have that thought? Well, anyway, the boat tail, $28 million, and that can be yours. Now, I want to show you a third car, and this car is famous for a very different reason. Okay, we'll pull this car up on the screen. This is a 1966 Volvo 1800S. In contrast to the first two vehicles I showed you, in 1966, this car's MSRP was $4,090. A guy by the name of Irving Gordon owns one of these. It's the most famous one of these cars. And this car is famous not for its flashiness, not for its top speed, not because it's the most expensive. It's most famous because it has the record for the most miles on its engine. You won't believe how many miles this thing. This thing has over 3 million miles on the engine. All right, we think it's good if our car goes 100,000, 150,000, 200,000 miles. We're like, whoa, that's a great car. Okay, try 3 million miles. You can go around the earth 120 times. That's how long 3 million miles is. And Irving Gordon, I just want you to imagine all that he's put this car through. He talks about how the key is just maintain the car, regular oil changes, right? Treat, treat it well. It's like, okay, thanks, Irving, you know. But he drives this car all over the country to car shows. And just think about it with me, all that that engine has endured. Think about what that's been through, where it's been, how it's been put to the test. Now, here's where I want to kind of bring this over into the arena of our lives. So here's what we're doing in this series, Under the Hood. We're asking some questions about what does it look like to have a faith that endures and thrives no matter the twists and turns and tests of life? What does it look like to have in our internal system 
right, in our souls to have the type of faith that no matter what we experience, no matter what circumstances we encounter, we can continue to remain steadfast and thrive. You see, every day, every one of us, whether you're a person of faith or not, your worldview is being put to the test. What you believe is about, what you believe is ultimate reality, what you believe about yourself, what you believe about your purpose, what you believe about the afterlife, those things every day are being put, put to the test. Is there a God who cares for you? Is he trustworthy? That faith, as you encounter circumstances, is being examined, it's going through trials, and what we're going to be doing in this series is we're going to be asking, what does it look like to have a faith that as we navigate through the tests of life will only serve to increase, to grow and flourish. And so with that in mind, I wanna invite you to look with me starting in verse one, James chapter one. And uh, we're gonna dig into just the first four verses today of James chapter one. Look with me. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, this is an ancient letter. Uh, this letter starts in the regular formula. We have a formula for our letters, right? We say, dear so-and-so, and at the end we say, love or sincerely so-and-so. Well, in ancient letter writing, they would always begin by, uh, by saying who the sender is. So James starts, says, it's James, and he describes himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's who James is. James is not just a follower of Jesus. We know from the book of Acts, James is a leader of the early church uh, in Jerusalem. He was one of the key leaders in the early Jesus movement, but James is also known as the half-brother of Jesus. He was one of Jesus's brothers, along with Jude. And James, he, as we can tell from the gospels, the narratives about the life of Jesus, was not a believer in Jesus as the Messiah until after Jesus rose from the dead. James was skeptical about his brother. Maybe he was a little jealous of his brother being the favorite, who knows? But James went throughout his life and it was after the resurrection of Jesus, James surfaces as this leader of the Christian movement centered there in Jerusalem and then expanding beyond. And James writes this letter saying he's a servant. That word in English is a weaker description of what he's saying. He's saying he's a bond servant. He belongs to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what James is saying about his brother. He is placing his brother at the same level as God. He's saying, God and the Lord Jesus Christ, I am a bond servant to the Father and to Jesus Christ, ascribing divinity to Jesus. This is who James is. And he says, here's who I'm writing to. I'm writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. That's a whole rabbit hole. We go down deep, but let me summarize it for you quickly. The 12 tribes in the dispersion is a way of describing mostly Jewish Christians who were scattered, dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. James is writing not to Christians in a particular city, but really to Jewish Christians kind of scattered all throughout the Roman Empire. And here's what James goes on to say. He says this, verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
James gives us some of the most startling words in the entire Bible. He says, consider it all joy. The word order in Greek is all joy, consider it when you face trials of various kinds. What does he mean by trials of various kinds? It's an umbrella term to describe different life circumstances that are hard. Could be loneliness in view, could be loss in view, could be poverty in view, could be uh, betrayal in view. Whatever the trial is, it could be a moment where everything around you seems to be falling apart. He says, in a very umbrella general term, consider it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Now, the question that is probably a, a helpful question, a right question to ask is, is James then saying that if you are a follower of Jesus, that the only emotion you should ever have when you experience a trial is joy? That is not what he's saying. One scholar put it like this. He describes the way that that word all is used, not to describe the exclusivity of the emotion of joy, like only be joyful when you face trials of various kinds. Here's what he says. This is how one commentator put it. He said, James does not suggest that Christians facing trials will have no response other than joy, as if we were commanded to never be saddened by difficulties. His point, rather, is that trials should be an occasion for genuine rejoicing. In other words, that idea of considering it all joy, some translations say consider it pure joy. Consider it an invitation into genuine joy when you face trials of various kinds. Trials of sickness, trials of loss, trials we encounter in life. James is making a claim. Here's the claim. Walking with Jesus through a trial is an opportunity for joy. Walking with Jesus through a trial is an opportunity for joy. Take notes, write that down. You may ask, how is that possible? Because I hate it when that happens. How is it possible? James gives us two reasons why. Two reasons why. Here's the first. Number one, first reason why we can take trials as opportunities for joy is, number one, trials reveal the true nature of your faith. Trials reveal the true nature of your faith, and that is a good thing. James chapter 1, verse 3. Look with me at the passage one more time. After he says, count it all joy when you face trials, he says this, for, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Okay, that word that he uses there for testing, uh, I want you to think of the picture of someone putting something to the test, uh, of taking something maybe that's been constructed and examining it, testing it, seeing what's actually there. Uh, I think about, uh, especially this time of year, we just had a graduating class of high school students graduate, getting ready to go to college. And uh, I often like to tell incoming freshmen, story of my very first college exam, like my first real college exam. And in high school, I had kind of developed this as my study habit, okay? This was my process. I'd pay attention in class, all right? High school students, pay attention. I'd pay attention in class, and then on the night before, this is what worked for me, the night before my test, I'd review what I paid attention to. I spent, spent a little bit of time kind of reviewing my notes, and then I'd take the test, and I'd get a good grade. A or B, you know, I was just used to that. That's kind of my pattern in high school. I know that's not everybody's experience, but that's what was my thing. Then I get to college. I show up, and it's my first chemistry exam. Pay attention in class. 
the day before the exam, I review my notes, show up like, you know, you know, ready to rock this, got my number two pencil in hand. And I sit down to take the exam and a couple days later found out I got the worst grade I think I've ever experienced in my entire life. And it was a wake up call. Now what happened in that test? That test revealed how weak my study habits were. It exposed something about me that before the test, I did not know. I thought I was good. I thought my thing, my process was good enough. It was strong enough. Hey, I pay attention. I study the night before. I thought that was sufficient. And that test made it abundantly clear that I was mistaken. Here's what trials do. They reveal what's actually true of us. See, people, when things are doing good, when life circumstances are smooth, we have this filter and this ability to kind of manipulate our behavior and kind of present with a, you know, a front that we've got things together and we can be courteous. But when a trial comes, that filter goes bye-bye. And what's actually down deep underneath starts to be exposed and revealed. And this is a good thing. Here's why. There's three ways that trials can reveal what's actually true of us. First, trials can reveal how our faith has grown. I don't want us to overlook that. Trials can reveal how your faith has grown. Uh, you can come up against a circumstance that maybe a few years before you came up against something similar, and years ago, it did you under. You were freaking out full of angst. Maybe a few years ago, that person treating you that way caused rage and anger to bubble up in you. Maybe years back when someone treated you that way, you held on to this bitterness that just festered and ate away at you. But this time, it's like you're not the same person anymore. What that's revealing through that trial, rejoice. Praise God, you're growing and becoming more like Jesus. Trials can reveal that. And it's like in the steadiness of life, in the regular day-to-day -day moments when things are calm, cool, and collected, you don't really see that as much, but when the trial comes and presents itself, you realize I am not the person I once was. I'm more a person of peace. I'm more patient, I'm more empathetic, I'm more understanding, I'm more loving, I'm still not perfect, there's still room to grow, that still bothers me, but man, I'm, praise God, not the person I once was. Second thing that trials can do is the trials can reveal conversely how our faith might be weak and where our faith might be weak. And God, like a good doctor, not to shame us or embarrass us through a trial might shine a light on an area of our hearts that we thought, man, I thought I was above that. I, I did not, like the thoughts that were running through my mind when that person said that. The, the way that I handled that situation at work when that person did that. The way I responded in anger and rage, what the thoughts that came to mind towards that person, I didn't even know I was capable of having those thoughts. What's happening in that moment is God, like a good doctor, is saying, okay, here's what's really in your heart. You didn't see it before. This situation isn't producing that heart decision out of thin air. That was in there before. Trials do not create junk in our hearts, they reveal them. 
And like a good doctor, God is saying, here is the problem, now let's go to work on it. And so we should rejoice. How can we grow as people if we don't know how we need to grow? How can we become more people of love, people like Jesus, people of truth and grace and courage? How can we do that if we don't realize we're all those things we need strengthening? So trials, they can reveal and expose where our faith needs to grow. And third, trials can also reveal where we have no faith at all. Jesus tells a parable, and James, no doubt, has this parable in mind as he's writing this letter, thinking about this parable that his brother Jesus taught. James, uh, Jesus describes this farmer in a story, and he says there's a farmer who went out to a field to sow seed. And this farmer goes and he sows seed into various types of soil. There's uh, this metaphor he's using, the seed represents God's word, the message about Jesus, the kingdom of God. And so this farmer goes telling people about Jesus, sowing that seed, and there's some soil that is like full of thorns. It's got all these thorns around it. So the seed kind of grows up, but then it eventually gets choked out, has no room to stretch out its roots. And there's another type of soil that's really not soil at all. It's just kind of like pavement. And so that seed doesn't even penetrate the soil at all, and so nothing grows. But James, or Jesus also talks about a third type of soil before he describes good soil that's about soil that's like full of rocks. Now, uh, Amy and I, we uh, have this little garden, uh, raised garden bed in our backyard, and we have experienced the full gamut of, you know, success and failure in gardening and planting seeds. And so if you've done this, you have experienced this before and realize how important the soil condition is for the growth of your seed. But here's what Jesus says in Luke chapter eight, verse 13. He writes, or he says this, and the ones, the seeds that are on the rock, those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of, what's that word? Testing. Testing. Let's say that one more time. Cooper City as well. In a time of? Testing. Same word James uses. In a time of testing, they fall away. Here's what Jesus is saying. There are some people who hear about him and are like, I'm on board with that. Like forgiveness, going to heaven. I don't want to go to the bad place. The good place sounds good. I receive that with joy, all about it. But then a time of testing comes. They walk through a situation where they're not cool with what God let happen. And Jesus says there are some people who in those moments of testing, what's exposed is they actually didn't have genuine faith at all. And they reject God. They walk away entirely. And James is showing us, calling us to mind these trials we experience these are actually reasons for joy. And to my friends who are here, that maybe you've walked through a time of testing and right now where you're at in your own life is that you feel like, man, I don't even know if I have any faith. I want you to know God's posture towards you is he's still a farmer planting seeds and he's still for you. He still wants you. He still loves you. He sees you and he invites you to trust him. And so Jesus giving us this picture here, we can see Trials, they have this powerful way of revealing and exposing the nature of our faith. And for that, we should 
rejoice. But here's the second reason why we should rejoice when we experience trials of various kinds. Number two, walking with Jesus through a trial strengthens the endurance of your faith. Walking with Jesus through a trial strengthens the endurance of your faith. Again, look with me, James 1, look at verse 3 again. James says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says that when we are tested in our faith, it produces steadfastness or endurance. And then when steadfastness or endurance, when we endure through trials, what happens is James uses pretty strong language here that points to our maturity in Christ, our growth in Christ. Like children who grow up and are raised in Christ, there are seasons of a child's life where they go through a growth spurt and like a week has gone by and they grew a couple inches, like crazy. And then there are seasons in a child's maturation process that, man, it's like in my case, several years and it's like just a little bit of growth, okay? You haven't grown very much at all. So you just got that, it's okay. Uh, and, and so it takes time and it's a similar dynamic in our faith journey that trials produce this steadfastness, this endurance. And that is what over the long haul produces this thriving faith that makes us more and more like Jesus. The metaphor or the example of exercise is helpful here. Faith in many ways is like a muscle. You've probably heard this before or heard this kind of comparison before. It's helpful. If you're at the gym and you're working out, you've got this routine that you've been working through. Eventually, if you keep doing the same thing, you'll hit what's called a plateau. Your body is now perfectly built itself to where it can output what you're challenging it to do. And if you want to grow beyond that plateau, what you need to do is introduce a new exercise pattern, a new test for your muscles, a new test for your cardiovascular stamina so that you can then uh, move past that level of performance to a level of greater strength. And trials in our life are the weight room of following Jesus. There are gym sessions when we go and we start to put to work the faith that God has been working on us in the daily rhythms of, of pursuing God, the daily rhythms, the small things of meditating on scripture, praying to our heavenly father, being in community with other believers, those times of trials are the moments where we hit the weight room and we put our faith to the test. And James says those trials have a capacity to grow our endurance to strengthen us. Now, if you're like me, I wanna ask the question of God, and maybe one day I'll get to ask him, why does it have to be that way that we grow? I, why couldn't it have been another way? You're powerful enough, right? Why couldn't we grow through the good times more than the bad times, right? And I think what scripture communicates to us, and perhaps what God might respond to us if, with that question is that that's the medicine for the disease that's in our hearts. Here's the disease in each of our hearts. Whether you grew up in the church, whether you're new to faith, not sure what you believe, we all share this disease from birth. There's selfishness and pride in our hearts. Every single one of us. 
And it's our desire from birth to try and seize authority, autonomy, and decision-making for ourselves. We are people who love control. When I am the driver of my own life, I'm in the driver's seat, I feel comfortable, I feel at peace, I feel stable. And the reality of the universe is that that is a deadly lie, that we are not the autonomous ones at the center of the universe. There is one who is. And the medicine for that disease is for us to walk through experiences in life where we come face to face with the cold, hard truth that we are not in control. And God, because he loves us too much, because he cares for you too much, walks with you and holds your hand going down into the valley of a trial with you where there are no shortcuts. And holding your hand, he walks you through a trial showing you how his strength is enough, how his grace is sufficient, that you never had control to begin with, so why not just start trying to trust him now? Surrender control now. Trials have this ability in ways that no other life circumstance does to bring us face to face with the reality we are not in control. We aren't in authority. And so for that, we should rejoice. God, thank you. Even through tears, as I'm overwhelmed by this circumstance, as I'm overwhelmed by a new job situation that I don't know what I'm going to do next, or as I'm overwhelmed by this health diagnosis, or I'm overwhelmed by what's happening in my kids' lives, or I'm overwhelmed by what's happening with my parents as they age, or I'm overwhelmed by what's happening in my marriage. God, I, as I'm walking through this trial, God, I, I just come to you right now, and I just come face to face with the fact that I need you. I need you. I can't figure this out. I'm not enough. I surrender control to you. Let me just, in response to that, just raise the question, like, wouldn't we, wouldn't you want to become more a person of peace? Like, don't, don't we want that? Don't we want to become more people of compassion and forgiveness? Don't we want to become more of the type of person that when we face a trial, we don't just go wild with angst and fear, but we have this steadfastness to us that when the others in the world and in the room may be panicking, that we might have this calmness and peace that washes over us because we trust our Father in heaven. Don't we want that? Like the moments when we're panicked are the worst moments in our lives. The moments were filled with rage and anger. Some of the worst moments, don't we want to be those types of people? God says there's medicine for that. It's walking with me through a trial. It's letting me lead you out the other side. James says, rejoice. A lot of times we're like my son. When he has a cold and we try to give him cold medicine, he can't stand the taste of it, so he refuses. He won't take it. And we, you know, we've done the, the syringe thing, right? We've probably made all sorts of parenting mistakes, scarring him too much, right? Like trying to squirt it, like open the mouth, you know? Uh, we've tried everything when they're not doing well and he doesn't like the taste. And because he doesn't like the taste of the medicine, 
like a, like a five-year-old, refusing to receive that which would help him. Here's our response sometimes when a trial comes. Because we don't like the taste, we try and refuse it. See, just like there is a way that James says, when you let steadfastness have its full effect, that's the wording. Let steadfastness have its full effect to make you complete, lacking nothing. Well, there's a way to handle trials where you don't let steadfastness have its full effect. You again seize control and try and handle it your own way. You try and take a shortcut out the valley. And here's what that looks like. Sometimes for some of us, that looks like or ignoring or distracting ourselves into oblivion, avoiding our trials. We got something going on in our life. So what do we do? We come up with a distraction. We pour ourselves into this distraction and hey, listen, that works a little bit for an extent, but here's the problem. The circumstances don't change and you don't change. It's kicking the can down the road. Others of us, what we do is we run from our trials. If the, the cause of a trial is a relationship, our reaction is to just run away, is to leave it. Sometimes people do this with church. When, when there's conflict in the context of the body of Christ, some of us, our reaction is the first tiny glimpse of conflict. We run, we're gone. And trials, sometimes God wants to use that very trial to grow you and grow the other person. Other ways we try and avoid the medicine, some of us, we take some sort of numbing mechanism, a substance we give ourselves to, something we maybe started out as, hey, this was literally medicine prescribed to me because I went through this injury and then it becomes a consistent thing and then we can't get off the thing. And, and for some of us, it's a substance. It's something we take into our bodies thinking that it's gonna make our problems go away. Or at least if we're honest, making us feel like for the moment, we feel like we can be distracted from the pain. Others of us, we harm ourselves. We try and do to our body how we feel on the inside because of a trial. Some of us, what we do is walk through these situations with a religious denial of the reality of our pain. And we pretend like we're not sad. And we confuse James chapter one, verse three to mean a Christian should never be sad. And that would be denying the very nature of Jesus who stood outside of his friend Lazarus's tomb and wept. Trials aren't our cue to avoid them, run from them. They're an invitation to walk with God through the valley. Sometimes God works by changing the circumstances when we pray. We should pray and ask God to change our circumstances, for him to change the heart, work the situation out. And sometimes God in his power does that and he changes the circumstance. But sometimes God works in our trials by changing us, not the circumstances. Sometimes the trial remains, and what needs to change is our heart, is our level of patience and trust and love. So you might be asking the question, what do I do? I'm walking through this trial, what do I do? A helpful place to start is by looking at Jesus. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus knows he's about to go to the cross, and he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And he goes there and he invites his friends to come with him, his disciples. And these disciples of Jesus, they follow him into the garden. They leave the city of Jerusalem, go down into a valley and come up to this big olive grove. And he begins to pray there. He asks his friends to pray as well. And in Jesus's prayer, 
This is described as his final test. This is Jesus's final test, and he's praying because he knows that the cross is coming, and Jesus's prayer is essentially, God, change my circumstances. If there's any other way, please set me free from this cup, this, uh, this amount of suffering I'm about to drink down into my body, this pain I'm going to endure. God, please, if there's any other way, spare me from what I'm about to walk through. He's honest with his father. But then Jesus surrenders and says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the answer on that night, on that Thursday evening outside of Jerusalem from the Father, was silence. It was a prayer that Jesus asked for something from the Father to do, and the Father said, no, my son, my plan is for you to go. And Jesus goes to the cross that next day And after that test in the garden, we see a renewed resolve in Jesus. He had wrestled through it with God, his father. And now he goes with this renewed resolve to the cross because he knows resurrection is coming. He knows that hope is on the way. Jesus comes and he dies on the cross, taking the punishment and guilt that our sin deserves. Jesus takes that onto himself and he dies And then on the third day, he rises up from death. So what's our pattern? What do we do when we're going through a trial? Here's some helpful wisdom from Jesus. Bring your friends along with you. The praying type of friends. Bring your friends with you, let them in. Say, hey, would you come alongside me? Would you pray with me? Would you please pray? Here's what's happening. Bring your friends. Second, be real honest with God. Don't sugarcoat it, he already knows. Don't say to him what you think he would want you to say, say to him what's in your heart. Honest prayer. God, change this, please, I don't know what to do. But then third, surrender the outcome. Surrender the outcome saying, nevertheless, God, no matter what, I'm gonna trust you through this. I'm gonna trust you're gonna work this situation out. You've always been faithful. You'll be faithful again now. I trust you because I know resurrection is coming. Because I know it's not the end of my story that even if my life ends today, I know I have eternal joy ahead of me. Consider it joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And here's God's promise over our trials. I wanna read this to you as we close. Romans chapter eight, here's what the apostle Paul, a man who knew what it was like to walk through and endure trials, here's what he says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for, our, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So brothers and sisters who are walking through trials today, press on. Your father has you in his hands. He's with you in the valley. He's holding you. Let him hold you. Don't avoid it. Don't run from it. There's no shortcuts in the valley. No substance will cure it. Your father is with you and he wants you to trust him. And on the other side of it, you'll see. One day you'll come up against another trial and you'll be able to say, wow, I can't believe how I handled that. God, thank you for how you've grown me. Thank you for how I'm not the person I once was. And by your grace, one day I won't be even the person I am now. And I just say to those of us who are here in light of what Jesus shared in that parable about those who through testing reveal that they really had no faith at all, my invitation to you is that today you would receive the message of God's, God's love in Jesus Christ. Take hold of that truth today. Believe it with all your heart. Receive Jesus as your Lord. Say with James, your name, servant, of Jesus Christ, servant of God. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes as we close our time together? If that's you, if you're here and you want to right now, whether you're here at our West Pines campus or watching over at Cooper City or online, if you're here today and you're ready to make that declaration of faith, then right there where you are, you can say this to God. You can say, God, today I believe. God, I believe not just in word, but with my whole heart that Jesus is my Lord. God, I receive you today. I turn away from living my life my own way. I surrender control. I surrender my own way of thinking and living. And Jesus, I turn to you. Forgive me. Come into my life and shake things up and make me new. Help me to follow you with my life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Hey, if you made that decision just now to put your faith in Jesus as your savior, we wanna celebrate that decision with you. That is a significant moment in your life. If today's the day that you put your trust in Jesus, we wanna come alongside of you in this journey of faith. And so here's what I'd love for you to do. If you would grab that Get Connected card you got when you walked in, or there's one in the chair backs in front of you and mark off the box that says today, I put my faith in Jesus for the first time. I decided to follow Jesus today. Check that off, put your information down. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna send you a Bible. We're gonna encourage you, pray for you. Go ahead and do that now. And in fact, if you're watching online, you can also go to cityrev.org slash faith. Right there, you could fill that out and we could come alongside you as well, wherever you may be, and help you get started in this journey of following Jesus. Well, church, we're gonna close in song together. So would you go ahead and stand with us and we close our time in worship. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.